As you're getting seated and as you're getting situated, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, 1 Peter 1. This morning we're going to continue in our brief little series that we're doing from time to time on the golden chain of salvation. Uh, Just to refresh your memories, it's been a few weeks since we've been together in the series. Remember, we borrowed that title from the Puritan, William Perkins, and that phrase, golden chain, is in reference to those glorious verses at the end of Romans 8 that we love so much. Remember, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, in describing our salvation, the Apostle Paul outlines various aspects, insofar as we experience it, the various phases or dimensions of our salvation. And each link in the chain, the golden chain of salvation, each link in the chain inexorably, inevitably, invariably leads to the next without fail. And we're dealing with what's called sometimes the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis, as it's known in Latin. And again, I've printed out copies of that little chart. If you want to take one, they're in the back uh, of the worship hall on that little shelf, uh, the the Bible shelf back there, if you want to grab a copy. Uh, It's not my favorite version that's out there. I might have tweaked a few things here or there, but for our purposes, it works just fine, I think. Scripture, or rather that chart, helps us to visualize this overall series that we're studying through together. Scripture teaches us about the various and different aspects of our salvation. But, But in what order do they happen? Do they happen simultaneously? Uh, well, some of them occurred well before I was ever born. Uh, things like election, for instance. Uh, some of them I seem to sense, and others I don't. Well, the ordo salutis, the ordo, order of salvation, provides for us a framework of understanding. It helps us take all these different bits and pieces and, that Scripture teaches and make some sense out of them. Think of it like this. It's as if we have a bunch of all these books on the floor, and they're all true and good doctrine that's in those books, and they're scattered all over our floor, but we've got nowhere to store them. And someone comes along and crafts for us and constructs for us a nice big bookshelf on which to place all of these books right in the middle of our living room, and now we have a structure at last by which to organize all of these wonderful tomes. That's something of what's happening here in the Ordo Salutis. It gives us a structure or a frame of reference by which to organize and understand the teaching of Holy Scripture as it pertains to our understanding of salvation that the Lord has worked in our souls. Now, we began a number of weeks ago with that great catch-all comprehensive term that's used in Scripture for the whole of God's saving purposes, union with Christ. Union with Christ is that great context. It's It's the realm within which all the other facets of salvation exist and operate. It's like the hub of the wheel and all the other blessings and benefits of our salvation are the spokes which emit from that hub. There's no blessings. There's no redemptive benefits for us to enjoy apart from our union with Christ. And then last time, a couple of weeks ago, we moved from that great summary, that great comprehensive term that takes in every phase of salvation, union with Christ, and then we thought about the very roots of our salvation in the purpose and decree of God from eternity past. We consider the glorious doctrine of election. When, in the mind of the triune God, he chose to save sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity to the praise of his glorious grace. So the first doctrine we thought about was union with Christ, then election, and now this morning we're coming to, if you like, the third link in the golden chain. 
as I say, this series is designed to give us a, a bird's eye view, the, the big picture overview, that view from 30,000 feet of God's saving dealings with his people. And today, we're moving a little bit out of the esoteric into the experience. All of these things are true. Union with Christ, election, they're all true, but those are sort of intangible truths that occur way back in eternity past. Difficult to wrap our minds around and perhaps uh, undetected to our senses. But today we move a little bit more into the experiential aspect of our salvation. One of those facets that we personally experience in our mortal life. We may not know it at the time. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. We'll talk about that. But for all of us who have saving faith in Christ Jesus, there was a point when we were dead in our sins and God used means. He used the means of his word to draw us, to call us to himself. And that calling was not in vain. It was effective, effectual calling. And so to help us think about this important and beautiful truth, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. So let's read God's word, and then we'll ask for God's help and blessing as we study it together. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this morning. Let's all pray. Lord God, grant us the ministry of your spirit to our minds and to our hearts so that we might understand what we read, what we've just read, and that you would use your word in our hearts to strengthen us as we continue in the good fight of faith. Give us illumination and give us a love for and give us an attention to your word this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have an absolutely breathtaking passage before us this morning. It's an extraordinary statement of the way in which God has brought these Christians to himself. Remember the Apostle Peter? He's writing this letter, First and Second Peter, these letters to this group of Christians. 
uh, these elect exiles, as he called them earlier in the letter. You see that there at chapter 1, at the very top, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And these elect exiles. And I'm just taking one passage here amongst many that we could have delved into in terms of First and Second Peter, and I'm abstracting it for the purpose of fleshing out this doctrine this morning. But the Apostle Peter anchors the salvation of these elect exiles to whom he's writing. He anchors their salvation in the work of the Lord Jesus, and he extrapolates and demonstrates the implications of Christ's saving work for their living, for their ethical lives. We read in our passage, you may have noticed that, that they are to be obedient children, he says. They are to live holy lives because the Lord who has called them is holy. Remember, he's writing to these Christians scattered all throughout Asia, really Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And these Christians have suffered terribly for their faith, and they're about to suffer even more. They're about to undergo even more grievous persecution And the Apostle Peter doesn't want them to give up hope. He wants them to press on. And he says there in verse 14 that they are children of God, and so they ought to live as obedient children. They should be holy as God is holy, verse 16. But how is it, we might ask, if Peter were here with us, how is it, we might ask the Apostle Peter, that they have come to be God's children in the first place? Verse 15, as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. You see, these Christian people, these Christian believers have moved. They've been translated. They've been relocated. They've been transferred, whatever verb you might prefer, from being children of wrath to being children of God by means of the call of God upon their lives. God has called them. He has summoned them. He has beckoned them. He has drawn them to be his children. And so three things that I want for us to see from our study of this text this morning, three things as we think about the doctrine of effectual calling. First, what is effectual calling? And then secondly, an objection, a common objection to effectual calling that's worth our time to think through. And then thirdly, the impact, the impact of effectual calling. Doctrine is for living. Doctrine is not merely for academic pondering and consideration. It's not just for nerdy theologians and and seminarians to get into arguments about. No, no. This doctrine is for the good of your soul. This doctrine is for the good of your life and the life of your family and for the life of our congregation. And so we want to think about the impact that the doctrine of effectual calling has in the living of these days as we live life together as God's people. So let's think through those three things together. First, what is effectual calling? If we look at verses 22 through 25, there at the end of our passage, we see here, Peter goes on to explain exactly what this calling is. What is this calling by which we are brought to enjoy the redemption that is won by Jesus Christ, that is wrought by Jesus Christ? What is this calling that brings us into this blessed status of the children of God? Verse 23, he says, if we are Christians, we have been born again. What does he say there? We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The the new birth, the reality of being given a new nature, the, the, the life to come, if you will, breaking into the life now, as many theologians have put it, 
The life of the world to come breaking into the now. The future life breaking into the present. The, the resurrection life. The life that we will enjoy. Resurrection life in glory. Resurrection life coming in upon us ahead of time. Being born again. Being made the child of God. That takes place, Peter says, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. In other words, there is something eternal and supernatural that imparts that brings, that that conveys this new life to us. What is it? Well, he tells us that it is the living and abiding word of God. There at the end of verse 23. And he quotes there a verse that I trust many of you know well from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass, its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's a lovely passage. You'll notice that Dr. Wilborn loves to quote that passage very often as he reads scripture passages in our worship services. It's a wonderful point to make whenever we read the word of God. And you see the point that the Apostle Peter is making. How does God take dead sinners and give us new birth and give us new life? How how are we born again? He does it, Peter says, by his word. He does it by speaking new life unto us and into us. Right? God speaks just like he did way back at the dawn of time. Genesis 1 verse 3. Let there be light. And with a word. I love how it says it so, so woodenly and bluntly in Hebrew. Light was. God breathes out almost effortlessly an instruction. And existence has no choice but to bend the knee in obedience. And reality comes into being. And light was. With a word, that which God calls for and commands is thus created. Romans 8 verse 30, it's speaking about that, isn't it? Those whom he predestined, he also called. He called us. We heard his voice. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see there in the the golden chain linkage in Romans 8 verse 30, the called ones will be glorified ones and they have been predestined ones. Those whom he calls will be finally, surely, irrevocably, indisputably saved. This call of God creates the reality of new spiritual life and a status and a spiritual security that is unassailable. But one of the points that's meant for us to really understand here, more than merely inspiring great confidence, and it is meant to do that, and more than merely giving us great gospel assurance regarding the state of our salvation, and it is meant to do that, but one of the points, the main points for us to understand here, is that God uses means. God uses means in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, for many of you who've been hanging around this church, who have been hanging around the PCA or other Reformed churches for years, this is nothing new to you, the fact that God uses means. But for a number of us, this notion may be something new to us, and it's good for us to get our heads around it in order to understand God's saving operations in our lives and throughout all the lives of his people. God uses means. It is entirely possible. He is God, after all. He is omnipotent and omniscient and almighty, it is entirely possible that God could be pleased to simply snap his fingers from heaven and that we would pop up and become alive to him. That would be perfectly permissible, theoretically. But scripture tells us, rather, that God, in his infinite and inscrutable wisdom, is pleased to use means, the means 
of the preaching of his word, the declaring of his words, the proclamation of the gospel, that he is pleased to use that that transmission, if you like, of the word of God, of the good news, in order to waken sleepers from the dead and to summon sinners to life immortal in himself. To put it in more technical theological terminology, the effectual call is a distinct aspect from regeneration. We're talking about effectual calling this morning. Tonight we're going to think about regeneration. Regeneration is the new birth, being born again. But effectual calling is the the summons of God. It's related, but it's a little distinct. It's the, the word of God sounding forth by which he irresistibly draws sinners to himself. Now, many times theologians will lump those two things together, calling and regeneration, into the same category, and they'll treat them under the same heading uh, of effectual calling, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, I think the distinction is helpful, though, and for our purposes today, we're going to make that distinction. In fact, that's the, that's the way that our Westminster Confession treats it. It talks about the doctrine of effectual calling and the doctrine of regeneration under the same chapter. It's simply entitled, Of Effectual Calling. But if I can put it this way, regeneration, or the new birth, is the result. It's the product. It's the end result. Calling is how that result is brought about. It's the means. It's the method. It's the system. It's the way that that result is yielded. Think of it like this. It's morning. The Morris household, we're leaving early. We're trying to get to Grandma and Pop-Pop's house on the way to Thanksgiving, and we want to beat the morning rush. We want to get on the highway. So we wake the boys up early and tell them to get moving. That's, that's the net effect. They are awake now. We've, we've aroused them. The means by which we wake the boys up, however, it might be a loud alarm clock, it might be lots of noise and people hollering, wake up, and then going in and turning on, on the lights in order to disturb their slumber. That's the means by which they are brought about to that wakened state. Or the boys are in trouble because they're sticking dino trucks toys down into our floor vents again. Uh, they're disobeying. And they know that they're in trouble. Now, the means by which they know they are in trouble are the sonorous tones of displeasure that come wafting down the hallway from their mother in the middle of the afternoon. That's the means by which they are alerted to their new status. The end result is they're in timeout. But the means by which they're alerted to their negative status are the the voice coming, emanating from down the hallway. Our own, as I've already alluded to, our own Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. In fact, if you want to follow along, you can follow along in the back of your hymnal. It's on page 854. I wanted to read a paragraph to you. It's in chapter 10 of our Westminster Confession. Chapter 10, page 854, in the back of the hymnal. You'll see it there, the heading of effectual calling. And there, that first paragraph, all those whom God has predestinated unto life, and those only... He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time to effectually call, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their hearts of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. You know, so often the imagery of Jesus 
and Lazarus in John chapter 11 gets used when we talk about regeneration and the new birth, and, and rightly so. And we'll use that picture ourselves when we speak of that doctrine. But actually, it's perfectly appropriate to refer to that passage of Jesus and Lazarus when we speak about the doctrine of effectual calling as well, not merely regeneration. You remember the story? Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, and Jesus shows up and says, roll the stone away. And they're concerned because there's going to be a stench, and they're grieving, and they're mourning the death of Lazarus, and it's just awful. It's just awful to their minds what Jesus is suggesting. Jesus, he's dead. Why, why do you want to put us through these added layers of misery and grief? But he convinces them, and they roll the stone away. And what does the Lord Jesus do? Lazarus, come out! And that's all it takes. With the command and a call and the word of Jesus Christ, that which he calls for occurs. And again, it's entirely conceivable that the Lord Jesus, he could have stood there at the grave and at the tomb, he could have said nothing, maybe just blinking and staring into the open portal. It's conceivable. He could have simply willed for Lazarus to arise and come out. He has that power. And Lazarus would have if the Lord Jesus merely willed for it to happen. He would have come out. The triune God has that power. But in his infinite and inscrutable wisdom, that's not what the Lord Jesus does there. In God's infinite wisdom, he has ordained a means, an instrument by which the deceased Lazarus is brought to life. The call of Jesus Christ itself has the power to bring new life, to awaken the dead. We sing it all the time, don't we, in Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. That's what happens in the effectual call of God. I love how the great Reformed scholastic Francis Turton puts it. He says, effectual calling is an act of the grace of God in Christ by which he calls men dead in sin and lost in Adam through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. He calls them to union with Christ and to the salvation obtained in him. That's the call that Peter is talking about here in our passage this morning. And that is what makes verse 25, if you look at it, that's what makes it so utterly astonishing and glorious. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Why do we make such a big deal about preaching and teaching the word around here? In our congregation and in plenty of other Reformed and Presbyterian churches in the PCA and in all of our sister denominations and around the world as well. Why do we make such a big deal about preaching the word? Is it because we're self-important and we love to hear ourselves talk? God forbid. I'm sure there are some out there that are self-important and love and are in love with the sound of their own voice. But God forbid, seriously, God forbid that that is the motive. No, the reason that we make such an emphasis as we do on the preaching and teaching of God's word in our churches is that we believe this is what the scripture teaches. We believe that God himself has revealed that there is a, a God-ordained method by which he gives life to the dead and by which he ransoms and rescues hell-bound sinners and brings them to himself. This is the method. We place such an emphasis on it as we do because it's the only tool in our toolbox. We can't manipulate souls into heaven. We can't persuade them with our own cunning and reckoning and cleverness. We don't got it. It is only the preaching of the life-giving word which will do that. 
according to Holy Scripture. This is why we make such the emphasis as we do on the good news being preached in our midst for the good of our souls and for the ransoming of our souls and for the everlasting joy of our souls as God's people. See, that's what Peter says. This word, this call that raises up the dead and brings sinners to new life, this word, he says in verse 25, is the good news that was preached to you. There is a connection between the preached word and the effectual call of God that brings sinners up alive out of the grave. The, the, the death into which our father Adam has plunged all of us. It is the good news that was preached to us that God uses to call sinners to life, to give them the new birth. So that's the first thing for us to see here from this passage. What is, what is effectual calling? But then secondly, an objection to effectual calling. An objection. You say it's effective, but why are there so many who hear it then and reject it? Is God's word rendered somehow ineffective then if it's not working? Well, if you want, you could turn in your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 1, and you could look at verses 22 to 25 just to scan those. But really, I just wanted to zero in on verse 25. Paul there, the apostle, he's speaking about his ministry, his preaching ministry. And there in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Here's the great Apostle Paul now. He's talking about his preaching, and he's saying, so many people who hear me proclaim Christ crucified, they think I'm a laughingstock. I'm a fool. They think that my message is offensive. They, they mock me and they reject it. They are not converted. That's what Paul is saying about his own ministry. And yet, if you look back again at verse 24... But to those who are, skip ahead, called, both Jews and Greeks, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is preaching the word, and everywhere he goes, people are offended at his message. They mock and deride him for proclaiming such a stupid message as a Savior who is killed. I mean, think about it from, from an earthly perspective. A Savior who is killed, who is slain by a, a Roman podunk governor and rural bureaucrats in an outpost of the Roman Empire and hung up on a tree. This is the Savior you preach, Paul? This? And you want us to worship him? But Paul doesn't accommodate his message to a more, for a more sophisticated audience. He makes it clear that he preaches the same message. He doesn't put a more persuasive spin in certain contexts that grants him better success in those certain regions. No, no. He preaches the same message, the same stumbling block of foolishness of a slain Jewish rabbi who is God incarnate. And as he does that, God works in and with and by his word in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he calls some of those who hear, both Jews and Greeks, he calls them to Christ, and new life springs up in their hearts. And like Lazarus, they come forth from the grave. Now, what's the difference? It's the same message that's gone out. Christ is preached from Paul's lips. Sinners are summoned to receive and rest upon him as he is freely offered to them in the gospel. And the church carries that message 
that, that general call, if you will, to the ends of the earth. And as we do, the actual telling of the good news, right, we're not, we don't know how many folks are going to respond, but there's a, there's a general call that goes out. A general call as we herald the good news of Jesus Christ to all four corners of the globe. That general call goes out. But there is a distinct and accompanying effectual call. A ministry, a work of the Holy Spirit so that some, nay, many, many, myriads upon myriads, we're told in Scripture, myriads who hear the preaching, and even though they may have heard it a hundred times before, but that one occasion as the Spirit works and finally Light bursts forth upon their darkened understanding, and darkness flees away, and they see and apprehend the good news, and they come to life. It's a magnificent truth, and I'm persuaded that if we better understand it and appreciate it, it will change so much in our Christian lives. And so that leads us thirdly and finally to what is the impact of effectual calling? The impact. What is effectual calling, considering an objection to effectual calling, but then thirdly and finally, what's the impact of effectual, effectual calling. And as we conclude, let me borrow the insight of another preacher when he made this application, and let me expand upon it a little bit as well. Let me suggest just three ways that the doctrine of effectual calling impacts our Christian lives. There's countless uh, applicable arenas, but for the sake of time, let me li- limit it to just three. Preaching, parenting, and prayer. What can I say? I am a Presbyterian, and I like alliteration. Preaching, parenting, and prayer. So first, preaching, or evangelism, if you will. What boldness, or at least what confidence, with which this should fill us when it comes to sharing the gospel? Because this doctrine reminds us that the success, air quotes, the success of it, or the success of our endeavors, it doesn't depend on me, and it doesn't depend on you. It's not dependent on the rhetoric of the preacher. It's not dependent on you to have all the apologetic answers or to be savvy and suave and persuasive with the non-believer. No, we are faithful. Yes, it's our duty to be faithful. We present truth with clarity to the very best of our ability. We seek to provide answers. We seek to provide a reason for the hope that is within us. Yes, to the best of our ability. And then we trust in the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit as he works by his word to open blind eyes and unstomp deaf ears and to set the prisoners free. God does extraordinary things. Whenever God's word is read and preached and shared and studied, his word always goes forth and returns to him not in vain and not void. I love how one man put it. He said this, The miracle of the new birth takes place as the Holy Spirit takes up his word and carries it home with transforming force and power. All we are to do is to preach Christ and God opens blind eyes. What boldness we can have. What confidence we can have in sharing our faith. It's not up to me. It's not up to my power or ability or intuitive innate confidence. No, no. I preach. You share. We all teach the good news of Jesus Christ and entrust God the Holy Spirit to do the work as God has promised he would. So preaching. But then also think about parenting or grandparenting, for that matter, or any caregiving or child-rearing that you are part of, brothers and sisters, if we have the power to bring our children to Christ, dependent on our effectiveness, who among us would have any confidence in their child's eternal destiny? If it was up to you to preach your child into heaven, who among us would have any confidence in our child's eternal destiny? No. The power to save lies in the effectual call 
of God. Our job is to preach Christ crucified to them as parents and as a congregation. Isn't that the vow we take when a young one is baptized? We vow to come alongside their parents and preach Christ and rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's precisely what we do. We assist, we vow to assist the parents in the nurture of these covenant children. We lovingly proclaim Christ to them, pleading with them to believe and to repent and trusting the Lord to do exactly what he's promised to do when the gospel is shared. I love how one commentator put it. He said this, What a relief for me as a parent to know that my parenting competence is not the basis of my child's salvation any more than my own obedience is the basis of my salvation. But it all rests rather on the sovereign agency and free work of the grace of an almighty and supernatural life-imparting God. Close quote. So preaching and parenting, but then lastly, how about prayer? If we believe that the effectual call of God, that, that God sovereignly and supernaturally breaks in on dead sinners and gives them life as his word goes forth, how do we pray? Well, I'm thinking specifically about our missionaries and our church planters and our evangelists here, but this really does apply to all of us in some regard. We don't merely, merely pray that God would give our missionaries opportunities and openings and possibilities. Yes, we we, we pray for those things. But we don't pray only for those things or merely for those things. We must also pray surely that God would mightily sovereignly work through the preached word and through these Bible studies and through these small group meetings and through these witnessing opportunities and through these friendships formed and these sidewalk conversations about the truth of Christ. We pray for opportunities and we pray for God's blessing to make favorable contexts, to make fertile soil for the seed to be sown, yes, and we pray that God would attend their work and their Bible teaching with power with salvific power so that the gospel of Christ is shared, so that God would save people, would save people in Peru and in Mexico and Belgium and Germany and Scotland and French Canada and the Caribbean and Ukraine and everywhere else in between. That's how we ought to pray for the preaching of the word every Lord's Day here at Covenant. As it goes out from this pulpit and as it's carried along the airwaves in our live stream and as those sermons are recorded and people from all over the world download those sermons and listen to it, we must pray that God would save people. I realize I might be being simplistic here, but this is an important thing. We pray not merely for opportunities for witness, but we pray really and truly for people that God would really and truly take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. And we can pray with that kind of reverent boldness, friends, because salvation belongs to whom? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to your session. It doesn't belong to the elders. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he tells us in Jonah. And that salvation granting God effectually calls his people to himself in the preaching of that word. That good news, says Peter. There's power in the blood, as the old gospel tune song likes to say, yes. And there's power in the preached word too. There's power, effectual power in the preaching of God's holy word. May the Lord be pleased to bless the ministry of his word to all of our hearts today. Let's pray. Our Father, how we do bless you for the gospel. Help us to faithfully proclaim Christ crucified, though it is indeed foolishness to this world, because we know that through it, you open blind eyes So help us to believe it and to do that very thing. As your word is 
sounded forth from this pulpit and in our classrooms and living rooms and with our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors through our supported missionaries around the world. Lord, call and save sinners, thine own elect, for the honor of your great name. We do ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.